and we're back. All right, so let's uh, let's jump into Second Corinthians chapter two is where we'll start. Second Corinthians chapter two, great great book. We covered this in a lot more detail. If you were in the able ministers class that we did last year, last year uh, we covered a lot of this in terms of uh, the ministry application of Second Corinthians. Very practical book. So some of that, we might touch on a few of those thoughts, but 13 chapters, 257 verses, a little over 6,000 words. Paul's the author, about 60 A.D. Now the context is this. Paul's not in Corinth, right? And he had sent Titus to Corinth, and he's waiting to hear his report. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 2, if you look at verse number uh, 12, 2.12, he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, there it is again, the open door, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. So Paul was so troubled that Titus hadn't come that he crosses the Aegean Sea so he can meet Titus at Philippi in Macedonia. So like that's, that's the context of this book. And if you look at verse, if chapter 7, if you look at chapter 7, look at verse 5, 7, 5, just a little introduction here, 7, 5. He says, for when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down, ain't that a verse? Woo, that's a good verse. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul goes to Macedonia because Titus hadn't come because he wants to hear the report from Corinth, and Paul gets comfort by the coming of Titus. So here's what I want you to see. The birth of this book is tribulation and comfort in the ministry. Paul is troubled, and he gets some comfort as he ministers to the Lord. And those are the key words of the book, comfort and, and ministry. Those have to go together, comfort and ministry. Second Corinthians is a book about comfort and ministry. It's about the nature and how we receive comfort. It's about ministry, the message of the minister, and what ministry is supposed to do in our lives and to others. So this is a great book. If you have a heart to serve, 2 Corinthians is an amazing book. The key verses you see there is chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which speaks about the God of all comfort. We'll read those verses later. Those are great verses. You put them on every probably card you give to somebody who loses a lost loved one. You put 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, All right, that we might comfort others. So Jesus Christ is presented as the comforter. So look at chapter 7 of verse 7. Let me give you some more context now. So Paul meets Titus in Macedonia. He crosses the Aegean Sea. Bump, he uh, tracks Titus down in Macedonia, in Philippi. And it says in 7.7, 7, And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. So from Titus, Paul learns that his prior letter had accomplished his purpose. It gave them repentance. 
It caused the Corinthians, as bad as we saw they were last week, that book of reproof, they got some things right. They mourned over their sin. They were sorry for their sin. And Paul's rejoicing. But he learned some other things. Look at chapter 11. He must have learned some other things from Titus. He does get some bad news. He learns, probably from Titus, that there had been some false teachers creeping into the Corinthian church. And some people creeping into the Corinthian church that were challenging his apostleship and challenging Paul's authority as the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at 11, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which we have not received, or another gospel, which we have not accepted, you might well bear with him. He's like, somebody else is coming, and they're preaching something else. Look at verses 12 and 13. But what I do, uh, no, go to chapter 12, I'm sorry, chap, no, 12, no, same chapter, 12, 11, 12, chapter 11, verse 12. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So there's some stuff brewing in Corinth that Paul isn't just slapping them on the back, he's going to send some warning. There's some people creeping in. And that's a, that's a, that's not in my notes. That's a good thing to remember. When you get a victory, the devil is right on the heels of that victory. He wants to come in and spoil it, mess it up, puff you up, twist you inside out. Just watch out. Watch out when God gives you a victory because the devil's probably right around the corner to try to spoil and rain on your parade. And that's what he's doing here. So all of these developments going on in Corinth, the false teachers, the challenges to his apostleship, these provoke the seven reasons why Paul writes the book. I'm going to run through seven quick reasons why Paul writes the book. All right, go to chapter one. I got a lot of background, then we'll dive into some things about it. Chapter one, verse 15. Reason number one for the book to explain why he has not yet been able to visit them. He says, and in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before. So the first reason why he's writing this book is to explain why I haven't gotten there yet in person. Number two, chapter two, verses six to nine, right? Two, six, sufficient to such a man as this, Punishment that which was inflicted of many, so that contrary wise, he ought to rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him, for to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. The second reason, he's urging them to restore the repentant saint. Chapter, uh, the first book is a book of reproof. There's a man right, fornicating with his uh, stepmom. And it's common knowledge, and Paul rebukes it, tells him to put that man out. That man gets it right. 
That man humbles himself, and now Paul says, okay, obey in all things. You obeyed me to put him out, now you've got to obey him to take him back in. Third reason, chapter 7. And I'm just touching on these, we'll dive into them a little more later. 7-4. The third reason for the book is to praise them for obeying his first letter. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. He says, even though it's tough, I am praising you that you obeyed my first letter. What a blessing. What a blessing when somebody listens to counsel, when somebody listens to the scriptural admonition, when somebody takes heed to the Bible. Nothing blesses your heart more than somebody willing to listen to what the Spirit has to say through the Scripture. Not what I have to say, but what the Bible has to say. Because so many times you feel like you're up here, not to this crowd, this is the great crowd, but sometimes you feel like you're up here just throwing pebbles on a brick wall. Because <laughs> you talk to people long enough and you know you might have book, chapter, and verse, you might have tears in your eyes, and you're looking them dead in the eyes, and they ain't doing what God said no matter what you tell them. And sometimes you just want to like, just want to go home and eat a pizza. <laughs> it's like, you know, what am I wasting my time here for? Because you could see it on somebody's face. They got no intention of doing anything the Bible says. And uh, it's a sad state. So Paul is excited. Like, yeah, amen, you guys did it. That was tough to put the guy out of the church. That was tough. There's no joy in that. There's no fun in that. If you take joy in that, leave this church. Because I don't like that spirit. I've, I've been a part of those meetings in Staten Island. I've had to do some of that stuff out here. It's not fun to tell somebody you're out. You know, they talk about churching people. You get churched. You know, you get put out of the church. It's not fun. It's not fun to do it. Nobody takes any joy doing it, but sometimes it has to be done. And uh, Paul's so happy that they took heed. Uh, what am I up to? The fourth reason? Chapter 8. 8, 10 to 11. The fourth reason is to urge them to give their promised relief to the poor saints of Jerusalem. To urge them to give their promised relief to the poor saints in Jerusalem. He says, And herein I give my advice, 8.10, for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it. As there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which he had. Uh, he says, about a year ago, you said you were going to give something. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's put some feet to that willingness. Chapter, uh, chapter 12, reason number 5. Chapter 12, reason number 5. 12, 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Reason number 5, to vindicate his apostleship. To vindicate his apostleship. He says, truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. He's saying, guys, you saw what I could do. He's not boasting in himself, but he's saying, you saw the sign gifts. You saw that I am an apostle. 12.21, reason number six. To warn the unrepentant. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So he's hard in book one, and a lot of them repented, but not all of them did. So he said, I don't want to come and have to deal with you. Get it right. Get it right. 
That's a message, right? Because when the Lord comes, he doesn't want to have to deal with that. He'd rather have you repent now. And in chapter 13, verse 3 is the seventh reason. To warn them against false teachers. He says, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you it is not weak, but is mighty in you. He's saying, you want, to, you, you want to see if I'm really the teacher you should have? He's warning them against the false teachers. Now, those are seven reasons for the book. That's a good study in itself. If you just build, build that out, it's a great study. Just running through them. And 2 Corinthians is our manual for ministry. That's what, if you want to remind, remember something practical about 2 Corinthians, it is the manual for ministry. It is God's handbook for dealing with people. It's God's handbook for dealing with people. And you got to see how 1 Corinthians goes with 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the first letter, is a book of reproof. He is dealing with their sin. And that hurts. It does. He's stepping on the toes. He's rebuking. He's reproving. He's got to use sharpness. Not fun. 2 Corinthians is about repentance and restoration. That's the ministry. Dealing with sin, directing the saint. This one comes before that one. This one hurts, this one helps. But the message is, you can't direct a saint and help him or help her until you deal with the sin. It often hurts first, but it helps in the end. So the books actually teach something. And 2 Corinthians 5.18, if you want to flip there before we jump into some deeper things, he says in 5.18 that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. About reconciliating, re-agreeing, putting things back together, restoring things. That's what the book is about because that's what the ministry is about. The ministry is about restoration, about reconciling people back to God. That's the heart of this thing. It's not about cutting people down. It's about building people up. It's not about driving people away. It's about bringing people in. It's not about, you know, uh, uh, hurting people and skinning the sheep and really getting them. It's about building some Christians up. It's about restoration, restoring lives, restoring families, restoring lost years. That's the goal of the ministry. That's what this book is about because that's what the ministry is about. The breakdown is pretty simple. You see it on your sheet. Uh, one to seven is Paul's explanation. Why was he delayed? What, his first letter, his concern for them, his exhortation in eight to nine to fulfill their promise of giving to the saints in Jerusalem. And then 10 to 13, he's going to vindicate himself. His tone changes. Now it's about his apostleship. Now it's about his right to their love and respect. Paul, Paul had to do that for these guys. He had to kind of like assert himself a little bit because they were such knuckleheads. So let's go back to chapter 1. Let's, let's kind of pick out some, some truths out of this. All right? Buckle up, because we're definitely going to... This is like the last really long book, I think, for a while. So I'm going to run through this. 115. All right? <clears throat> he says, And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you beforehand, that ye might have a second benefit. That is such a big, important phrase. The first big idea to take out of this is the idea of the second benefit. He's trying to get them to receive the second benefit. If you have no idea what that is, great. Let me explain it to you. Jesus Christ gave his life that you might enjoy the first benefit. 
salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, a home in heaven, the Holy Spirit living inside you, your sins remitted, your sins removed, your name written in the Lamb's book of life, all those things that were done by Jesus Christ for you. The second benefit is you giving your life for Jesus Christ. And when you give your life for Jesus Christ, you get victory, you get blessing, you get peace, you get rewards, you get overcoming, you get power from God, you get those things. The second benefit is not automatic. The first benefit is all Jesus Christ's work for you, salvation. The second benefit is you putting some things down for Jesus Christ. And you got to notice that the manual of the ministry starts with the second benefit because that's the goal of ministry. That's the goal. The goal of every real preacher and every real church is to get all of the folks that go to that church to be willing to lay their lives down for Jesus Christ that they might receive the second benefit. So they might have power with God, have victory, earn some reward, bring Him some glory. Right? Church is not about getting people saved. We don't preach salvation every Sunday morning. My job is not to sit here and keep preaching salvation to you and try to retread you like some people like to retread tires, you know, try to talk you out of your salvation so you get saved again. Some churches, some King James Bible churches, you go in on a Sunday, it's salvation every Sunday. It's about bringing visitors in. No, we're supposed to go out there and get the people saved. We're supposed to take the gospel out there, not bring them in like a dragnet into here. Now, I'm glad for every person that gets invited. That's a great way to bring people to Christ. I know that. But the purpose of church is for the, for, for the, for the perfecting of the saints. It's to build you up and get you to receive the second benefit. Number two. Go to chapter two. Ah, here it comes. Look at 2.10. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You know what the second big idea is? Your unwillingness to forgive opens the door for the devil. Big time. We think it's witchcraft. We think it's drugs. We think it's sexual perversion and immorality. Oh, that's going to bring the devil in. The New World Order, the Club of Rome, the Illuminati, you know, the, the, you know all, these, all these Satanists, the Luciferians, they're going to bring the devil in. Those satanic Bible clubs that are in public schools all around the world, all around America, that's going to bring Satan in. You know what's going to bring Satan in the church? You holding a grudge. That puts the devil's foot in the door and lets him just push that thing open and say, I think I'm going to come here for a little while because you guys just gave me an entry. He says, don't be stupid. That's how the devil works. We're not ignorant of his devices. He's not talking about your phone, right? your devices. That's a cute application, but that's not it. Satan's devices is unforgiveness because an unwillingness to forgive leads to bitterness and bitterness leads to defilement. So he says, you better forgive this man that's coming back. Better not hold a grudge. Better not look at him like this, you know. Give him the weird eye. Number three, right? Uh, look at verse 14. There's some beautiful metaphors and pictures in here. 
2.14. He says there, Now thanks be unto God, which always... What is verse? Which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Woo! You're not a loser today, folks. You're not a loser today. You're always a winner if you're with Christ. You're always a winner. If you do it His way, you always win. And maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perished. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Here's the thought. When we die to self... We win Christ, and we remind the Lord of our Savior. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine tomorrow, if you live your life in such a way that you remind God of Jesus Christ? You think that would not bring His blessings upon your life? And even if He didn't bless you for it, wouldn't that bring a smile to His face? Maybe me, the jerk that I am, maybe for five seconds before I drop dead, I could put a smile on my God's face for all the smiles he's put on my face. Maybe I could just once be, do something selfless and not so selfish. Because most of the Christian stuff we do, it's selfish. I want victory. I want peace. I want blessings. How about something for him? And it says right there, we'll be a sweet savor. You know when you read Leviticus, you read about the sweet savor. The sweet savor was a part of the burnt offering. It's called a sweet savor unto the Lord. The burnt offering was an offering that was completely consumed. Everything was on the altar. They burnt the whole sucker. It was all given to God. And he's saying, if you could be like that, if you could swallow your pride and forgive this man and lay yourself down and do what God says and, and sacrifice some of your pride and anger and bitterness and just do what God says, he says, you know what you'll be? A sweet savor of Christ. You'll remind God of Jesus Christ who gave His all when you try to give your all. And i got to ask myself as I read these verses, do I smell like the Savior, the Savior or do I smell like the serpent? When God takes a whiff of me, oh, Pat, you stink. You smell like Pat Mishanya. You smell like the devil himself. I, I wouldn't want him. Wouldn't you like him to just to, to kind of, his spirit to, Zoom past this room and just go, what is that? Oh, I smell Jesus Christ over there. Right? A savor of Christ. A savor of Christ. Is your all on the altar? Can't smell like Jesus Christ unless you give him your all. Because Jesus Christ gave his all. So, see who you're following. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Great little nuggets in here. Amen. Um, I'm going to write the word epistles up here. Because the, the, the next thought I see here in this book about the ministry, about people, is you might be the only Bible anyone ever reads. 3-2. Ye are our epistle, written on our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Your life is an open book. Somebody's always watching. Even when you don't know they're watching, many times it's not a Bible verse. 
Many times it's just them watching your life, watching your consistency, watching your responses to things, watching your peace in a storm, watching your patience, watching your forgiveness. He says, you guys, we can hand out 10,000 tracks. We can go to a mission field to hand out 10,000 tracks. Doesn't make as much of an impact as you will at the dinner table this holiday season. And you may, not have, you may not be able to give a track, but your peace, your countenance, your friendliness, your charity, your love, your grace speaks volumes. Speaks volumes. Nobody should be surprised when they find out you're a Christian. You? Oh, I didn't think so. You know, that would be terrible. <laughs> it should be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It figures. Figures you're a Christian, right? That should be the response. I know sometimes at work, I can't. I'm struggling out with this young lady that's got cancer. I'm like, I got to do something. You know, but I'm not, I know what it means. It means termination. It means like losing your job. I, know, I understand. Maybe I'm going to do like a pseudonym and like send an email because I got the person's email address. I got to do something, right? But I mean, even if I can't do that to the students in my class, even if I can't stand up and preach the gospel with words, I got to try to do my best to do it with my life. If I can't do it with my lips... Because if your life doesn't line up with your lips, then your lips don't, are, are lousy. <laughs> don't mean anything if your lips don't line up with your life. 318. Another picture. The looking glass. All right? A looking glass. Look what he says in 3, uh, 318. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by, as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Word of God is a looking glass, like a mirror, to show you what God sees and what God thinks. This morning, I hope, I hope this morning, if it was before church, it still qualifies, but I hope you got in front of a mirror, <laughs> right? You as one brother got it, right? You examine yourself in front of a physical mirror to conform your image to what in your mind you know you're supposed to look like. You get in front of that mirror and you're like, that's not supposed to be sticking up like that, you know. Some of you don't have that problem, I know. But you know, that's not supposed to be sticking up like that. Or this shirt's got to look like that. Or I got to tuck this in or do that. Or, you know, spackle this. Or let me put some, you know, plaster over here. And I got to, you know, dig this smooth, and get to buff this out and do all that stuff. I know. Because you got an image in your mind about what you're supposed to look like and you get in front of the mirror to conform to that image. You get in front of God's mirror, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is conforming you to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit inside of you says, you're not supposed to look at that. Hey, Pat, you got some anger there. Hey, Pat, there's a whole bunch of unbelief in your heart. And he's saying, trust God, have peace, lay that down. You know, he's trying to conform you to what he sees in the inside. He's looking at you and he's saying, I got to make you look like Jesus Christ. You get in front of the mirror. You don't look right when you don't get in front of a mirror. And when Christians don't get in front of the Bible, they don't look right. They don't talk right. They don't seem right. They're not right. Because the mirror helps the Holy Spirit point things out to you so you can conform yourself to the image of the one you're supposed to be like. Chapter 4, verse number 5. The earthen vessel. I'm looking at a whole room full of them. Four, five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, 
who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in open, in, in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Your body is the earthen vessel that bears the light of God. In the book of Job, chapter 4, it says, We dwell, quote, in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust. You know, you're not your body. You live in your body. We dwell in houses of clay. Adam means red-brown, clay. Right? You, and the first man, Adam, the Bible says, was formed from the dust of the ground. And you live in a house of clay whose foundation is in the dust. The first man, Adam, was formed from the dust of the ground. That's your foundation. But the last Adam said, I'm the light of the world. And he's the one that lives inside of your body. You think that? I thought about that the other day. It's like, do I really believe that? Jesus Christ lives inside my body. It's not like alien. It's just like the Lord's Spirit lives inside your body. Inside this frail, as my grandmother would say, Shangan, right? house of clay. right? This broken, decrepit, fallen apart, sometimes stinky, often betraying house of clay. God lives inside that thing. Why? So he gets the glory from everything he does in your life. Because your body is decrepit and weak and miserable, and God said, if anything gets done that's great, I can get all the glory from it because you sure couldn't do it. Amen. <laughs> in verse 6, he says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. He's echoing back to Genesis 1. He's saying, The God that said, Let there be life in the beginning, put life in our heart. Remember in the beginning? There was chaos. There was disorder. There was darkness. There was the ruin of sin. You know what was in your heart before you got saved? Darkness. The Bible talks about the darkness and the blindness of your heart. You know what God did? He says, let there be light. Amen. Just like He put that light in the beginning to begin to restore His creation, He put the light of God in you. Why? To restore His creation. Wow, wow, wow. That's what the world needs to see in us. They need to see you. They need to see him. That's why verse 5 says, we preach not ourselves. <laughs> because what are you going to look at? Another dead corpse? <laughs> Another house of clay? No, you need to see the light. And that's what the world will see in us. One day we break these houses of clay and the light comes out. This little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it. It's going to shine one day, beloved. It's going to shine like Gideon's army. They went up there with those clay pitchers, right? With a light inside of it. And when Gideon gave the shout, they broke the vessels and they came down the mountain with those lights and everybody must have been freaked out. The army went crazy because they saw these lights descending down the mountain. And that's a picture of you at the second coming of Christ when he breaks this vessel and the light that's been in there, the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Romans 8 talks about the manifestation of the sons of God that people are going to be holding in that day and they're going to be coming down that mountain with Jesus Christ, our Gideon, and they're going to finally see the light. You lend it out now. Chapter 5. I'm running out of room. All right, let me 
Let me start a new half of this list here. Uh, chapter 5, verse 20. All right, chapter 5, verse 20. Another analogy God draws. Up to 7. Ambassadors. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. What an, what an, what an illustration. We, are, we did a class of that a couple of years ago. Ambassadors for Christ. We're diplomats from another land on a mission. An ambassador. We represent another kingdom on this earth. 520 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. If you're saved, you are representing God. When you speak tomorrow, it's as if God was speaking. Because what you're saying, you're supposed to be saying on behalf of God. As though God did beseech you by us. That is a trembling thought. It's a trembling thought. Then he says, We pray you in Christ's stead. We're praying in Christ's stead, in Christ's place. Because if you're a Christian, you don't just represent God, you're a little Christ. That's what a Christian is, a little Christ. His representative. Your life should be his life. How are you doing at your ambassadorship? I mean, that's why you're here. You're here on assignment. Chapter 6. Separation. Oh, boy. What does that mean? I'm signed, sealed, delivered, separated, full of Holy Ghost, right? When a lot of people say separated, that means they don't go to movies, right? They think that's what separation is. My wife wears a dress, and I don't go to movies. Congratulations. And then you tear up the pastor after, at lunch after Sunday service, right? You tear, up the pastor, you tear up the pastor at Sunday service, but you didn't go to the movies. <laughs> you don't smoke, and your wife wears a dress. Congratulations. They got a name for you in the Bible called a Pharisee, right? That's not separation. Separation is not how you dress or how you don't dress. It might be a symptom of it, but separation is something in your heart. And 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18, is the classic text on the call for scriptural separation. And I don't see anything in here about what you're wearing or what you're watching or anything like that. It just says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You know why it's nebulous? Because that might mean different things for different people at different times. God's purposely not going to pin it down to just how long your dress is or how you cut your hair. Because those things are very superficial. God's aiming at your worship and your heart. He talks about your fellowship. He talks about communion. He talks about concord. He talks about parts. He talks about agreement. He talks about your walk. That's what he's talking about your separation should be in. And then he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because you're supposed to be in the yoke with Jesus Christ. How can you be in the yoke with Jesus Christ and kick him out and put a lost person in there? Right? You can't do it. It's wrong. And I know sometimes they see that. You know, people see that when they want to get married, they check a box. Well, they're saved. Check. That's, I mean, some people could be living, going to heaven, still living like hell. You better make sure it's more than just salvation, that they might be on the same page with you and other things, right? But notice he says at the end, he says, I will be a father unto you. And he's quoting something he said to Solomon in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David, if Solomon stays clean, that king 
would have a relationship with God. And in verse uh, 17, he says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. See, it's a state of being. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He's picking up on that thing he said to Solomon. He's saying, if you stay clean, you can have a relationship with God, and like Solomon was going to get terrain, you'll get terrain if you'll come out from among them. If you'll give up your little toy for eternity. We're like a little baby with our little toy, and mommy and daddy wants to take the little toy out of their hands because the toy's broken. It's got like metal shards on it. It'll cut your hand and hurt you. He said, give me the toy. No, it's my toy. I love this toy. You know, take, but it'll cut you. It's, your hand's already bleeding. Mmm, mmm, mmm. You ever see a kid like that? No, mmm, mmm. It's like that's how God is pleading with us sometimes. Your hands are bleeding. There's rusty nails sticking out of that thing. I got something much better for you. Can I just have that? Mm-hmm. And God says, if you come out from among them and put that junk down, you'll reign with me for eternity. Chapter 7. This one's, this one's about repentance. Biblical Repentance. Right? Chapter 7, verse 9. We doing okay so far? Yeah. Making sense a little bit? Just please tell me yes. I can't deal with your rejection. 7, 9. <laughs> now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry. He's not, he's not glad he made them feel bad. But that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made, bless you, after a godly sort, after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us and nothing. He's saying... I'm glad there's a blessing of biblical repentance. That's why they rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents. Not one sinner that says the prayer. Not one sinner that, you know, you lead to Christ and convince to get saved. He says, the sinner that repents, that makes heaven happy. That makes the Lord himself rejoice. So what's the difference? He said, look at verse 10, real repentance. For godly sorrow, sorrow towards God, worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. You'll be, you'll be glad you were sorry, because if you got sorry the right way and it led you to Christ, then you'll be, glad you got, you, you, you'll be glad you were sorry for a good reason. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. He draws a difference here. Real repentance is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is like David. David said, how can I do this thing and sin against God, right? Psalm 51. Joseph said the same thing, right? David said, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Joseph said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? The prodigal son said, I have sinned against heaven. That's biblical repentance. That's like, I have offended God. And I get convicted sometimes because sometimes our draw to salvation is, well, you don't want to go to hell, right? And, and you're lost, and Jesus did this to save you, and, you know, if you pray this prayer and accept Jesus as your Savior, He'll take that away, and He'll save you, and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll wash that sin away. But it's never about that the fact that they offended God. It's like, well, you know, Adam screwed you up, and, you know, you got all screwed up because Adam, and now look at this fix you're in, and Jesus came to fix you out of it. So, you know, you just trust Him as your Savior and take Him. I wonder how many of those have been false converts in my own life. Where is the contrition? Where is the, I have sinned? 
Where is the, you've lied and God said not to lie. You've lusted and God said don't lust. You've hated in your heart and God said that's murder. And your sin wasn't against your wife or your spouse or your friends. Your sin was against a holy God who could throw you into hell. That's a very different message. That's what the old-timers preached. The Luthers and the Wesleys and the Whitfields, the ones that brought revival that we always look back to, they weren't begging people to get saved. They were preaching it straight down the plate with compassion, but they were still preaching it straight down the plate and pointing them to offending God. You offended God. You sinned against God. That doesn't have to be a hateful message. That's an honest message. Godly sorrow works repentance. But the sorrow of the world works death. That's Esau. Esau is the man of the earth, the worldly man. He's just like, oh, I lost my blessing. Oh, I lost my blessing. And he's crying those tears. I lost my blessing. And we might say, look at this guy. This guy's crying. This guy's crying. Get him down here. Quick, get him. Before he changes his mind. Quick, quick, quick. Surround him. Put him in the room. Get the silent. Don't let him get disturbed. He'll get distracted. Get him in there. Get the Bible open. Quick, quick. Get the right people to talk to him. Quick, you know, no disturbance. Shut up. Get out of here. We're talking to somebody. You know, gotta get and he's oh, oh, and he's, and he, oh no, and he gets. I got saved. Esau got saved. I got another one. Esau got saved. And Esau walked out of that room lost as anything. And you led him to Christ and you gave him the sinner's prayer and showed him the plan of salvation. And the only reason he's crying is because he lost his blessing. And you convinced him that God was going to get his blessing back for him. And he just, oh, yeah, 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 I like, yeah, 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 I'll trust Jesus, yeah, I'll take Jesus, yeah, what are, yeah, I'll pray. And he even prayed maybe with his own words, oh, God, I'm sorry. I just wonder, I'm just, I'm preaching to myself. How have I, have I misrepresented the gospel? Because the gospel is you've sinned against heaven, right? You sinned against heaven. 11, verse 11 gives you seven attributes of real repentance. You could read this seven things there. What carefulness, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. That's real repentance right there. Chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9 are about giving. 8 and 9 are about giving. The full mention of giving, not tithing in the New Testament, grace giving. There's no obligation to give in the New Testament. We don't pass a basket. We got a box. You want to put something in the box? Put something in the box. I don't know who puts anything in the box. I don't deal with the money. I don't count the money. I don't know anything about the money. Right? Just, it's between you and God. But 8.12 says this, where he starts talking about giving. He says, if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted. Before he gets into the heat of it, he starts with a willing mind. Because you want to talk about giving, before you give, all you need is a willing mind. You willing? You say, I don't have a lot of money. Okay, what do you got? <laughs> I don't have a lot of time. What do you got? I don't have a lot of talent. Great, I could use you. What do you got? <laughs> there be first a willing mind that is accepted according to that a man hath, and not that he hath not. God sees the glass half full, not half empty. Then chapter 9, when you get to chapter 9, if you look over verse uh, 8, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. He says, when you give, your God will make this grace possible. You say, Lord, I really can't do this, but as you reach that thing out and give it, God gives you grace and makes it possible. It starts with a willing mind, and then God's grace moves in, makes the impossible possible. 
Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is about dealing with strongholds. And we all got them. Some different ones. But he says in verse 10, 10, 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Those are areas where the enemy has made inroads in your life. That's not the guy cut you off and you're like, you blankety-blank idiot, like where you lose your temper. That's, not that that happens to anybody like myself, but that, that's just areas where the enemy fears, insecurities, temptations, areas where the enemy has just moved in, built inroads, set up camp, and he's real comfortable. He's built a fortress there in your heart and your mind. How do you deal with those strongholds? How do you break them down? Because you can get victory. God says in the first chapter, the second chapter, He causes us always to triumph. So how do we do it? Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Here's the first part. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. First thing you got to do is cast those imaginations down. Recognize the stinking thinking and call it out. When those thoughts rise up in your heart, say, that is not Bible, that is not true. Doesn't make them go away, but you cast them down. You take the steam out. You cut the fuel lines off. Hey, I'm thinking this, God, but I know it's not real. I know it's not true. I know it's not what you told me to think. You said, think on these things. So I'm going to think on these things, Lord, and that noise can play in the background. That's just my stupid imagination. That's my broken mind. That's my broken heart. That's my insecurities. That's my past. Whatever it is that's making that stuff come up, that's not of you, God, and you cast it down. And then it says, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Second thing you got to do is bring those thoughts into obedience. And they're not going to obey you. And they're not going to obey me. But they'll obey Christ. Lord, I can't handle this. I can't fight this. I can't do this. This thing's welling up again, Lord. Help. And God says, I'll take that thing. And he puts those thoughts in captivity. I use this illustration. It's like a lion. Right? If a lion came running through this room, we'd all lose our shirt and like run out the room and be scared. But if a lion, you go to see a lion in the zoo behind bars, you're not afraid. Why? Because that lion's in captivity. Right? Jesus Christ can make those thoughts captive. He could take them and say, listen, son, these are just thoughts. You have these thoughts. These thoughts don't have you. Right? They're not real. And he can make them captive. Well, you could recognize them as just a lion in a cage. And it's a muscle you've got to build. It takes time. And then he says in verse 6, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience. He says, take your revenge. When you get it right with God, make it right with men. When you get something right on the inside, make things right on the outside. And that's how you start to break. If those strongholds have caused you to hurt your family, help your family. If those strongholds have ruined a relationship, buttress that relationship. If those strongholds have stolen time, give that time back to God. And that's how you, make, you take revenge and you break down those strongholds of the enemy's offenses. Chapter 11. We're almost there. Paul's jealousy. 11, verse number 2. 
For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you, engaged you, betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'm just going to throw this at you and let you just get, think about it. But he doesn't want you to be beguiled. That's an important word. Verse 3, beguiled. Eve was beguiled. Genesis 3, it says, Eve says, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Eve is a type of the church. She gets beguiled. She gets misled. She gets deluded. But when you study the word beguiled out, Genesis 29, Numbers 25, the context of beguiled is often sexual. Which makes me think, what did happen in that garden between Eve and the serpent? He wasn't a little snake slithered on the floor. He looked like a 33-year-old man. He looked like Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, you just, just think about that for the rest of your life. So he says, the same way Satan corrupted Eve's body, don't let him corrupt your minds. And Paul says, I was trying to present, I want to present you as a chaste virgin. Don't be like Eve, who wasn't chaste anymore. I'm trying to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Eve clearly wasn't pure anymore. He says, I want to keep your minds pure. Chapter 12. Chapter 12. I'm hurrying. Chapter 12 is the revelation of Paul. And it's interesting, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives more about himself than any other epistle. You don't see him talk too much about himself. A little bit in Galatians 1, some, some in Philippians, but here he talks a lot about himself. In the 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Paul reveals something about himself he kept quiet about 14 years for. About how when he died and was caught up to the third heaven and saw things unspeakable that he couldn't even talk about. And all throughout this book, he's talking about himself. I'll flip you to some of the verses. Look at verse, uh, look at 7 to 9. Just look at verses 7 to 9. Paul reveals that he suffered from bodily weakness. The great mighty apostle Paul. I'm weak. I got infirmities. Chapter 1, he says the same thing. In 1.8, he talks about uh, being pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Doesn't sound like the mighty, you know, hero of the faith that's on the cover of the books we read. I gotta get like this, right? <laughs> um, chapter eleven. I'm not gonna read it all. But we want to read Paul's resume in chapter eleven. You read verses twenty-three to thirty-three. Paul's resume reveals sufferings and hardship, not just within but without. Beatings and stripes and whippings and fastings and hunger and shipwreck. Thrice was I beaten with rods. A night and a day I was in the deep. Doesn't sound like, you know, the, the billionaire with the plane and the island and the yacht and the retreat center. It doesn't sound like that. How about chapter 10? Chapter 10, verse 10. Paul reveals some things about his appearance. He says in 10, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. 11.6, he says he was rude in speech. That doesn't sound like the eloquent wordsmith. 
that we think of Charles Spurgeon being. Paul's knees were knocking every time he stood up on Mars Hill to give the message or to preach to the public. He was shaking like a leaf. Stuttered a little bit, maybe. Stammered a little bit, maybe. Maybe forgot his place. But then Paul in chapter 5 gives the secret. Why did he love Jesus Christ so much? Why did he keep going despite all his adversities within, his adversities without, his physical adversities, his frailty, his infirmities? 5.14 he says, You know why I do it, guys? For the love of Christ constraineth us. Amen. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He says, well, I got to live for Christ. I was dead without him. He gave me life when I was dead. How could I not live for him? I know, mind-blowing, right? You never heard that before, I'm sure. I'm sure you heard it a thousand times, but we don't get it. But Paul's like, it's very simple. I live for him because he died for me. We love him because he first loved us. Chapter 13, and then we'll circle the wagons. It ends with a challenge to examine yourself. That's how your Christian life will end, by the way, at the judgment seat of Christ with an examination. And he says in 13, verses uh, 3 to 5, Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you were is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall, li we shall live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? You see how that comes at the end of the, end of the book? He's been vindicating himself. They've been challenging Paul. They've been examining Paul. They've been trying to have Paul prove that he was an apostle. So Paul spins it around on them at the end and says, Hey guys, why don't you examine yourself? Why don't you prove yourself instead of proving me? Prove your own self. Hey, don't you know Jesus Christ is in you and you're going to have to give an account? Why are you watching me so closely? Why don't you watch yourself a little more closely? Because you're going to give an account to God about yourself, not me. It's a great challenge. When I start looking, when I start pointing a finger at you, i got three fingers pointing back at me. God says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith, whether you're walking right, whether you're sticking to the stuff. Don't worry about me, Paul says. I'm doing what I know is right. Why don't you worry about yourselves a little bit? Good preaching, brother. I like that message. Amen. Good to you. Welcome. <laughs> That's a good message for all of us. Amen. Before we keep looking at a brother and sister, Amen. examine yourself. Turn that energy on yourself and... Check yourself out. And then in verse 14, the last verse of the book, Paul blesses them with the benediction, and it's the source of all our blessings. You see the Trinity in the end, the triune God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's where all blessings come from, the triune God. You've got Son, Father, Holy Spirit in one verse, in one person right there. So go back to chapter 1. I'm going to leave you with two quick thoughts. Do I got time for these two? Quick ah, I got to hurry. Got to really hurry. All right? Some big ideas from the book of 2 Corinthians. We said it was a book about comfort and a book about ministry. So let's talk about the comfort. <clears throat> First, what's the source of comfort? Verse 3. Verse 4, I'm sorry. No, verse 3. The God of all comfort. That's the source of comfort. God's the comforter. What's the purpose of comfort? Verse 4. Who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble 
by the comfort with we ourselves are comforted of God. He says, I'm giving you comfort so you can comfort somebody else. Amen. Right? If you had to deal with those PET scans, you know what? Sister Patty, she can minister to somebody at the cancer ward a lot better than I can because I never had to go in the machine. I never had to pray those prayers like my sister did. Right? Some of you that dealt with, you know, wayward children, you know what you could do? You could minister to people with wayward children better than somebody that never had that happen to them. Right? The comfort God gave you can help them. Those of you who got lost loved ones and you muddle through and you manage to serve God through that, you can help people that have lost loved ones. Right? God's putting you through things and showing you His comfort so you could be a blessing to somebody else. That's the purpose. Verse number uh, 5 is the compensation. What's the reward then? He says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. He's saying, if God brings you through it, if God brings you to it, He's going to have to bring you through it. That's the compensation. If He gives you trouble, it's not because of your sin. It's because of God laying something on the rack, like Matt alluded to on, on Sunday. If God's put some weight on the bar, He's going to give you a comfort, and the comfort's going to make up for the trial. The duty, 2-7. The duty of comfort. He says, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. It's our duty to comfort one another. Chapter 7, I'm not going to turn there, but chapter 7, verses 6 to 7 and 13. What are the agents of comfort? I'll read 7.13. 7.13. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. You know who gives us comfort? Each other. We're the agents of that comfort. When you show up to church and you try to be a blessing, that comforts me. And I'm supposed to comfort you. And iron sharpeneth iron. Amen. Can't work if you're not there. Can't do that on YouTube. 13.11. 13.11. And lastly, the imperative of comfort. You know what he says at the end of 13.11? He says, be of good comfort. Be comforted. He wants you to be of good comfort. Like be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Be of good comfort. And finally, chapter 11. Let's talk about ministry. Very, very quickly. And I'll, like I said, I'm going to hurry through this. What is the work that God has called all of us into if we're saved? You know you're all in the ministry? Amen. If you're saved, you're in the ministry. Amen. You say, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Oh, that might be true. <laughs> but you're in the ministry. Some of you are doing a good job. Some of you are doing a lousy job. But you're all in the ministry. There's no, like, clergy and laity here. Um... Satan has a ministry. 11.15, he says, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Satan has got a false ministry, he's got a false church, and he's got false gospel, and, a false, and he's got false ministers. Right? But go to chapter 6. Satan has a ministry, which is a counterfeit, and corruption, why? Because God has a ministry. Everything God does, the devil tries to imitate. And in 6.4, he says, uh, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. The Lord has a ministry. So what is the Lord's ministry like? That's so different from Satan's. Look at 4.5. 
You know what his ministry is like? He has a message. God's ministry has a message. 4-5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Its message is Christ Jesus. Satan's message is self and satisfaction. Our message is the Savior, Christ the Lord. That's the message. Chapter 3, verse 6. It's a spiritual ministry. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth light. It is a spiritual ministry meant to give life, not to kill or destroy, like the devil wants to do, that comes to steal and kill and destroy. His ministry is meant to give life, give hope. 3.8. You know what else about this ministry? How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? It's a glorious ministry. It's the highest calling in Christ Jesus. It's not, not supposed to bring shame and regret. That's Satan's work to bring shame and regret in your life. Christ wants to bring you glory and honor at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're in his ministry. How about 3.3? For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. You know what this ministry is? It's a transforming ministry. Gets down in your heart and changes you. It's not a band-aid like religion or a cover-up like Satan's work, likes to cover things up and put a little facade on Sundays. That's Satan's ministry. That's the lie of the devil. This is something when God goes inside and starts changing you from the inside out, not the outside in. That's the ministry that God called you into, a transformation. How about 4.1? It's also a strengthening ministry. It's supposed to strengthen you. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we faint not. The ministry God put you in is not supposed to make you faint. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So cast your burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. If you're bearing too much, you might, not be, you might have gotten out of the ministry a little bit. His ministry is supposed to give you strength, lift you up, give you some power from on high. How about chapter 518? Two left, 518. He made you a part of this, folks. You're a part of this ministry. 518, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's a ministry of restoring, reconciling. It's not a ministry of strife. It's not a ministry of division. It's not a ministry of damnation and condemnation. It's a ministry of hope. It's a ministry of restoration. It's a ministry of, okay, brother, you fell down. Let's try it again. You want to try it again? Yeah, I want to try it again. Let's try it again. I'll help you. You lean on me. I'll help you. That's the ministry. Not, oh, you did it again. You fell down again. I told you so. That's not the ministry. That's Phariseeism. The ministry is, let me get down there in the pig pen with you. And let, you want to get out? Let me help you get out. I'll get you out. Let's get out of here. You want to get out? Let's get out. All right, let's do it one step at a time. One foot in front of the other, brother. No points for style. Let's just go on. Let's try this again. That's the ministry. That's the ministry. That's ministry. Not looking down your nose at people. And 6-3. Six, 6-3. Three. Six, three. Here's the last thing. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. As much as I say it's a ministry of reconciliation, it's also a ministry that necessitates 
carefulness. You got to watch your walk. You got to watch your testimony. You got to watch your life because you're in the ministry. And Paul says, I want to make sure that the ministry could not be blamed by something I did or was or whatever. And you and I, as we make choices and do things and take paths in our life, you know what? It shouldn't just be about you. Say, hey, I'm in the ministry. You know what? I'm going to get personal for one second. There's plenty of Thursday night. I like to sit on the couch too. There's plenty of Sunday morning. I like to sleep in too. Now I'm preaching to the choir. You know, but for those that are not in the choir, that are still tuning up, hey, I, you know what? Say, oh, but Pat, you can't because you're in the ministry. And so are you. So are you. So oh, you can't tap out. You can't miss a Sunday because, you know, you're what? Because I'm what? Because I'm more saved than you? <laughs> I've got more Holy Spirit than you? <laughs> no. Right? It's the same thing. <laughs> Everybody's got different roles, but we're all in this thing together. We're all in the ministry. Amen. So we got to make our decision not because of us. People go, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a nobody. I just sit in the pew. I could just leave and come and go as I want. You know, I'm not in the ministry. Yes, you are. And you're supposed to live your life that the ministry be not blamed. That you put the ministry above yourself. That's the ministry. That's 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for this time, for these words. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that...